Welcome to RZ Weekly, a weekly podcast about the Jewish world, religious Zionism, and modern orthodoxy. My name is Ruben Spolter. I'm here with Rabbi Johnny Solomon and uh, also Molly Brodsky. And uh, in light of uh, listener feedback, we've decided we're going to do two topics and discuss them a little bit more at length uh, and try to flesh them out a little bit more than we did in our first, uh, our first episode last week. Uh, our two topics today, first topic we're going to discuss is the saga, the story about Rav Chaim Drugman and his pseudo-apology, I would call it, his, his letter of apology and his recanting of his apology and his response to the whole Rav Mati Alon affair. And then we're going to talk about an interesting Pesach Halacha that was, that was issued in one of the Alone Shabbat this week and the response to it from the more, I would say, right-wing Datizioni community. So let's first start with the, uh, with the, the saga of Rav Chaim Drukman. So uh, we're not going to go through the entire sordid history, but as, as many people well know, that there's a, the, the, the Rav Drukman, it's not really Rav Drukman affair, it started with a really tragic case of Rav Mati Alon. Uh, Rav Mati Alon, a tremendous Amin Chacham, also is a convicted sex offender who, in, who was found to be a, uh, a sexual predator who preyed on many people. I don't, I don't really want to go into the details, but then was exiled from the Jewish community and then was welcomed back by Rav Drukman, invited to teach as an institution after Rav Drukman had believed that Rav Rav Alon had, was Choser Bichuva, recanted, repented, um, and, and despite the fact that a very, very prominent board of rabbis and religious leaders called Forum Takana insisted that Rav Alon should not be reinstituted or reaccepted into the community. Did I, did I get all that correct? Am I, am I, did I, did I, Summarize that well, Johnny, Molly, am I okay so far? Based on what I know, that's, uh, that's the point. I mean, I, I don't necessarily know whether you could say that his teaching in Oetzion was a very large public affair, but certainly it was known that he was teaching in a respectable institution where he was being given a platform, and this was based on a, a sense of understanding and a desire to, to re- rehabilitate and give uh, him another chance. Okay, so Ramati add something to that. After Forum Takana explicitly said that he should not be given any platform, and that was part of the agreement with him. I think that's that's important. Correct, correct, absolutely. And and then so Rab Drukman allowed Rab Alon to teach in his institution. Unfortunately, tragically, it came out recently that Rab Alon, of course, because predictably, had returned to his his uh, behavior and had abused other people after he had returned thereby, you know, reigniting the whole controversy about why did Rav Drukman allow Rav Alon to teach at all? Okay, so, so interestingly enough, the, the pressure from Israel was really muted, if, if, if at all. Like, one did not sense that there was tremendous, you know, angst about the whole Rav Alon affair. People were upset about it, but you really didn't get a lot of, from, I, I really didn't sense a lot of, of, a lot of, um, a lot of, of, of pushback. But thankfully, the American Jewish community you know, in, in a rare show of strength, stood up, and specifically the modern Orthodox Jewish community, and said, we're not having any of it. And they strongly, they met with Rav Drukman, they tried to pressure him, until finally two things happened in the last couple of weeks. The first thing is that, that, a, that a, a, a fund from Toronto, I think it's called the Karen Hayididu Toronto, the Friendship Fund of Toronto, uh, told Rav Drukman that they're no longer going to support his, his machonim ligiyur. Rav Drukman has Giyur classes in different languages. That's one of the things, one of his institutions. They're no longer going to support him 
because of his involvement in the Rav Mafiello affair. And then, uh, and after repeatedly meeting, having leadership meetings with Rav, with Rav Druckmann, requesting him, asking him, begging him to not only apologize, but recant, uh, and having him refuse to do so, the RCA publicly issued a statement. Uh, I, I'm just going to read a little bit. Jointly calling Rav Druckmann to apologize to the victims of convicted sex offender Rav alone and acknowledge that he made a mistake supporting alone in 2013. Okay, so... I mean, it's interesting. I personally was very proud that the RCA took a, took a leadership role in, in, in promoting this idea and pushing this and really bringing it to the forefront because the idea in America, it's much more pronounced, the idea of protecting the, 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 the weak, especially in the areas of, of sexual impropriety and sexual abuse, something that I don't sense here. That's something we could talk about, uh, uh, I guess, at another time. But... Uh, what's what, what what's interesting to me? I, I, I have a, a what, what I, it's really if you don't follow this, the, the Rav Drukman's response I think was just absolutely shocking. I, I, if you didn't see it, you have to follow on the I guess we'd call the Hebrew blogs. There's like a couple of major Hebrew blogs. One is called Sugi and one is called Kipa. And you just have to read Rav Drukman to Kipa. Rav said the following: Nakit shani Let's say I'm not right. Why are you punishing the the midgarim? And then he called it. The, the decision to take away the money from the Mechoni Gior, he called it Mi'uvat. He called it, you know, uh, I would say Mi'uvat. How would you translate that? It, it's uh, crooked. It's a distorted decision. Well, they're not punishing me. It really was like, the problem is that Rav, Mati, the, the Rav Drukman, he, he comes across as completely and totally unapologetic. And even afterwards, when he issued a letter, and in the Israeli press, they said, you know, Rav Drukman finally apologizes. His letter had very little to do with apology at all. But instead, it was more like, I acknowledge that you have to protect the defenseless and that sexual predators are terrible. But nowhere did Rav Druckmann apologize. And nowhere did he come out and say, my actions were inappropriate. And I led to the, the possibility of, I, not that possibility, I, my behavior led to uh, in, in, uh, a number of other cases of sexual abuse. Okay, I've talked too long. I'd rather get you guys' responses to this if you have anything you'd like to add. And then I have, I have an, just an interesting comment to, to add at the, at the end. Molly, your response. <laughs> My response. Okay, so this is an issue that, that um, I feel pretty strongly about. Um, working as a therapist, I have training in working with um, sexual trauma and abuse, working with survivors of, of, of trauma and abuse. I'm on the Sevet Muganut of our Yishuv, which is set up to protect um, and, and educate about issues of sexual impropriety and, and abuse. So I kind of coming from that perspective. And for a while now, what's been becoming clearer and clearer to me is that a lot of what needs to be done within the Jewish community is that the leadership needs to be educated because a lot of well-intentioned Rabbanim, I'm not one of these people who's gonna, um, you know, just blanketly criticize the Rabbanim. I think a lot of them are well-intentioned. I, I have greater criticism of Rukman, but I have like a list of Rabbanim who, and people I've actually met with personally in terms of the context of Sevet Muganut, with, with great intentions, they just, they're not educated. They don't understand the dynamics of sexual abuse. Um, I'll just give one very simple example. There's this very kind of instinctive human assumption that a sexual predator is a monster. He can't also be a person who teaches Torah and who's 
warm and who's caring and who's done a lot of good. Like those two things, there's a cognitive dissonance about holding those two things. So, and there's also, I think, another very common problem among Rabbanim is that their instinct is to help. So when a person comes to them and misken and it's not clear, we don't want him to suffer, we don't want his family to suffer, and he should never have Knesset for the rest of his life, they, they very much are not aware of the dynamics of how sexual predators prey on good intentions, how they lie. Like there, there are a lot of, there's a lot they, that, that, that our rabbinic and communal leadership is not aware of. So my very strong feeling is what needs to be done is to bring awareness and education to the leadership. Um, I think that's really important. There are rabbinic to their credit who are actively pursuing this. They'll, they'll go to Knassim. There was just a Knesset in Hebrew you, I believe maybe it was somewhere, um, I think it was there, for, uh, about sexual abuse, and there were rabbis, communal leaders, who went to become educated and to understand, and that's what I think needs to happen. Um, for me, that, that's like, to me, the next, like, like, if I had a say in what should happen, it would be, we need to educate the leaders. Um, they, they, need, they need what's called psychoeducation. Why am I saying all this? Because Rav Drukman's case is a classic example of somebody who is, you can make an argument that he has great intentions, but he clearly doesn't understand what's going on. And what's more frustrating in his case is that he's not, he seems to be, I want to be fair, he doesn't seem to be willing to open his ears and hear what people are trying to tell him. He's digging in and doubling down. And that is why I think it's so frustrating but that he's not issuing a clear statement. Um, because I think that's what we need more than anything from our leaders, an awareness that, that they are learning about, maybe they, maybe they didn't know in the past, but now they're learning what the dynamics of sexual abuse and, and they're recognizing and they're publicly acknowledging that perhaps they made mistakes because they didn't really understand and now they do. And Rodrupin has not done that. And that's what I think is, is, is problematic in his response. And it's dangerous because it's very true that the communities follow their leaders. Like if the leaders aren't there, what do you expect from the communities? And I think it's a little bit sad that in many ways, portions of the community are ahead of the leaders, but there are still portions of the community. That, and again, I'm not, I don't mean to criticize a lot of well-intentioned Rabbanim. And again, to their credit, a lot of well-intentioned Rabbanim, when it's brought to their attention, do change their position. So that to me is what's missing with Rev Drukman, and that's why I think it's, it's, it's disturbing because it's a missed opportunity, uh, A, for, for him as a leader, and B, for the community to be moved forward by, by leaders who are willing to take that responsibility on their shoulders and be a good model for the community and, and move the community forward. This is either Molly, standing- Molly, do you agree with what I said that my, right. my perception in the, Hebrew, in, the, in the Hebrew-speaking world and in the Israeli world that they just don't, they, they don't seem to me to take this issue as seriously as yeah, Americans. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I think that that's a problem. It's a problem within right, the- But where's that problem come from? These are caring people. These are wonderful people. Exactly. What about Israeli that's culture? What is it about Israeli culture? For, it's, it's gotta be a culture thing. Maybe it's I just think not. it's an education thing. I think they're just not, it's a, an awareness thing. They haven't been exposed in the way that the American community has been exposed. Well, um, there have that's hard to argue. Well, like, you know, the president of Israel was convicted of sexually abusing his, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, so they've heard stories, but they haven't had, um, 
Again, communal lectures where survivors get up and tell their stories, or psychologists come into, into communities and explain, um, again, the dynamics of, of what sexual abuse looks like, how, how sexual predators present, um, wh- what the common pitfalls are with, that, that, that prevent people from recognizing and understanding the chumrah, certain t- seem of, of, of like, who, who, are, who are the usual victims? How do, they, how do they look for their prey, whatever word you want to call, right? How do they find their victims? How do they behave afterwards? These are all things that I just don't think the Israeli, that the Tilumi world has yet been exposed to enough. And I think that there's room for that. And there are, there are organizations that are starting to do that. Shout out to, to um, Jewish Community Watch um, that started in America and is now here and they're doing <laughs> It's, it's important. It's important. Okay, I want to turn to well, Johnny. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, there are a few things I want to raise, but just in response to the last thing you said, you began by making it clear that uh, as this saga uh, unwrapped itself early, uh, oh, before tw- the 2013, Takanaf Forum was absolute, was Hadmashma'i in terms of their expectations. Takanaf Forum is an Israeli institution, may well have been led by some Rabbanim with, uh, with American backgrounds. I think to suggest that somehow leadership here um, it has to be weak or has had a failing of leadership doesn't necessarily paint the, the, the true portrait of what played out here. What we had here was one camp of people who uh, at, at times n- not insignificant professional risk stood up and said, this is not going to continue. And they made absolute statements which many people did take seriously, and clearly some didn't. Uh, the question really we should ask is, not should we have uh, leaders who speak up, but instead, why was it that we had leaders who did speak up? By the way, some of those leaders, I'd say, were far more courageous than necessarily a position statement to, and a letter from uh, an overseas organization, though I certainly do both respect that and appreciate that. But why was it that we remain silent. And I would say furthermore, much of the outreach that's played out about this whole issue has occurred since the information has been revealed that Moti Elon has continued to abuse. However, between 2013 and that revelation, there was silence from the US and in in Israel. I personally um, was deeply uneasy that Rav Elon was teaching. Whenever people ask me information about that yeshiva, I made it very clear that I can't speak about the education of the school, but I can say that there is a significant cloud over the judgment of the head of that institution. It's very well and good that once the writing was on the wall for everybody to be outraged. My question is, why did we not listen to Takana, or or put it this way, why did we allow such a grave uh, dismissal of such grave concerns and allow things to be played out while most people certainly here and most certainly overseas did nothing. It, I don't know whether the RCA previously uh, wrote to Rav Druckmann. It's perfectly possible that they did. I certainly don't know enough about this topic. Nevertheless, if this was the first communication about th- this issue, I, I don't know why there should be a reason to applause. It's a no-brainer that if there's somebody who's being respected as a Torah teacher who's been proven to abuse, having previously done so uh, in a very, very public fashion, we should uh, 
censor anybody who enabled and protected that to take place. So I, I don't quite understand kind of ha what's happened that, or, or we'll put it, put it this way, how can we have a religious community, wherever we are, where such firm voices make it very clear? And by the way, you don't even need rabbis. I, I also think that we're putting far too much weight on the wisdom of rabbis. You know, people with a brain and a heart should know that somebody who is a repeated sexual offender shouldn't be in close contact with people for whom they've had uh, a tendency to abuse. You don't need to be a rabbi. I'd actually say I'm not so sure that most rabbis are anywhere close to being qualified to identify those markers. We need to, you're right, Mali, educate them. But the activists, it's the community members who could have, some of them did, but many of them didn't speak up between then and now. And the fact that it's led to further abuse, really, uh, I think the shame is on us all. I, 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 notwithstanding the responsibility that Rav Druckmann needs to carry and hasn't taken, and that's deeply regrettable. Uh, and we really should have been more vocal throughout that period. And I'm, I'm disappointed by many people. I don't think almost anybody comes out of this good, but obviously there are those who come out of it even worse. Okay. Um, wow. Ouch. feel bad now. Um, <laughs> I agree with you, but I feel bad. Uh, I, I actually wanted to comment on on one other aspect of this. There's really a lot of a lot you can a lot you can you can you can unpack. But I, what, something that was quite interesting to me is the idea, like when I when I saw this. So in the Jerusalem Post article about this issue, the RCA rabbi said that Rabbi Jordan is a great scholar, but that added that his failure to apologize for his support of Rabbi Loon was a serious problem for them and their constituents. Okay. That they want him to follow the example of David Melech, who admitted his errors. He should issue a definitive admission of wrong and make a specific apology to the victims of Ravalon and to the Takana Forum. And I, I thought that this was really interesting because, on the one hand, like I was, you know, clearly Ravalon's response uh, upset many people. And it, actually, if you, I don't know if you saw it, there was a there was an op-ed post in Makori shown this week about this a whole op-ed piece about it. I don't know if you noticed. None, nonetheless. This really resonated the, uh, the, the demand for an apology from Abjukman. It could very well be that that's what caused him to double down. And that's what really caused him to like, because Abjukman is, is without a doubt a great Tamil Chacham and he's been leading his institutions and a respected person. And what I would say is that David Melech, of course he apologized. He, I wouldn't say he apologized, he admitted wrong. He admitted his wrong. He said, Chatati Lashem to Natan and Avi. He didn't stand up in front of the entire Jewish people. Everybody knew what happened. He didn't stand up in front of the Jewish nation and give a mea culpa and issue a public apology. And this demand for public apologies and our need to get our, get our pound of flesh, maybe, Johnny, when you speak about it, maybe, maybe we want him to apologize to make us feel better about us not acting. Right, I, I don't right. Know right. You know, it's an interesting question. I just think it, there's, a, there's a whole culture of apologies and, and a demand for mea culpas that make us feel better, but that don't really ac accomplish anything. What they should have demanded is Rabalone has to acknowledge that his leadership didn't protect and commit to in the future, you know, not only, I would say, like, you know, Mali, not, only, not only instituting in his own institutions, but promoting this throughout all Yeshiva Bnei Akiva or whatever. But, the, uh, you know, whether he apologizes to his victims, 
that's his own Chazar Rabbi Tshuva. I don't, need a, I don't need to hear his apology. And this demand sometimes, I think, it speaks about our need for, you know, for self-gratification in some ways, um, you know, and on one, one hand, and also might have been counterproductive in this case as well. I'm wondering if you, what you think of that. I want to just say something because, you know, I, I don't have a lot of, um, that doesn't speak to me a lot because if you say to somebody, first of all, David HaMelech, there's a, there's a midrash that says that he asked God to please leave out, you know, those prakim from Tanakh and HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, I can't do that because people have to learn. Um, and, and, I th- and that's what I think is the same thing here. I agree with you. I, you know, there is a, like a culture of, a, of demanding apologies that may be more or less effective. But again, because of what I said before, because in this case, there's a process going on of people learning about an issue. And there's really a lot of misinformation and really a lot of misunderstanding. I, I think it's be, it, specifically in that area, the, the necessity to say, I thought X, I was wrong. I now understand why. The truth is why. And, and the Jewish community should know that because there are still so many people who don't get that. That, in this case, is necessary. You want to couch it as apology? You want to couch it as like, now I have clarity of understanding? I don't care, but it has to happen publicly for the sake of the community. And again, if, if this is going to cause a person to double down and, and kind of get defensive, then in this case, I would say, well, then you're, I want to know that about this rabbi. And that's the mark of difference between... Some people choose to double down and get defensive, and other people choose to say, And again, there are, there are rabbis, we have, we have rabbis who have done that publicly about cases of sexual abuse, where they have said, um, I thought X, and I was wrong. I was in, I was in, a, in a room with a, with a rabbi who did that, and it was so powerful and so important, and that's, that was to a group of therapists who didn't need to be educated, and it still made an impact on us. So, so, that's a, that's a sign of a leader. And if you're not able to do that, I want to know that about you. I think that's an important thing for me to know about you. That's, that's my feeling about it. Rabjani? My feeling is, when it comes down to it, uh, there was a grave error of judgment on his part. There was an even graver um, uh, uh, abuse done by Moti Elon. And let's, you know, whatever we say about uh, some people, there is the perpetrator here uh, who must be called on to carry the greatest responsibility. But our task as human beings, and certainly the task of a leader, and most certainly uh, uh, of a religious leader, is to ask themselves, who am I obliged to stand alongside? Right? Who am I bound to be most loyal to in the hour of need? When we say, Iman Chibat Who's in the greatest tzara? And with all due respect, and, and notwithstanding, I'm sure the great work that the institution for Giyur is doing, and, and we know that Giyur itself is a, is a complicated issue. Iman um, in this place, in this case, means that every leader should say, I stand with the victims. And whatever can be done to uh, assure them that notwithstanding the errors of the past, they are the priority, they are the most present in the consciousness of the leader, whether they did something wrong or not. They're, they're, it's important for them to know that we're with them. 
Uh, and I believe that this is a tafkid of, say, of any person, but most certainly religious leader, to look after the vulnerable, to look out for the needy. And the vulnerable and the needy have gotten lost in this whole issue. Uh, whether an apology is enough, uh, for many people, I'm sure it isn't. Nevertheless, an apology is a gesture. Uh, and if done right, which it often isn't, it, the very least it suggests I was blind, I, I, I erred, never, but still I want to tell you that I'm standing right by you now. Uh, it, it doesn't seem from what we've seen in the press, and of course one always needs to be careful as to how to read the press and whether that necessarily reflects precisely what's taking place, but it doesn't seem that's taking place. And our job is to be there to wipe away the tears and to recognize that any abuse that's happened, that's been enabled through the position being granted, um, will lead to pain, anguish, and nightmares for the rest of the lives of those victims. Those must be our priority. All right, beautifully said. I think we'll, we'll leave that, we'll leave it with that beautiful, uh, powerful sentiment. And uh, as, as we said, there's much more to say, but uh, we're going to move on to our second topic which is a little bit lighter, and uh, we're gonna move away from such a heavy topic. Our, sep our second topic is uh, regarding an psak halacha, well, sort of a psak halacha, that was written by two rabbanim, two, I would call, you know, two modern orthodox rabbanim, okay? Uh, in, in, one of them was in, uh, in, uh, in, in Aloneh Shabbat uh, this past week, uh, regarding the idea of women wearing, women wearing pants, okay? So uh, one of them was Rab, Rab, Rab Dr. Ido Fachter, and he wrote, you know, there's, a, there's a, one of the Aloneh Shabbat, and that's, by the way, one, a great topic for the future, the whole Aloneh Shabbat phenomenon, but uh, something else. Okay, he, he, was, he was wrote an article about, about women wearing pants, and whether it's a new art to wear pants or not to wear pants. So you can read the whole article and you want. It's called Shabbaton. You can look it up. You can actually look it up on the Surugim website that I spoke about. And he basically said, I can't find a reason to say it's Asur. Even though, like, I, I, don't, I looked into it all over the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you'd ask me, is it Sanua or not Sanua? He said, if it's tight-fitting, then they're not Sanua, then he shouldn't wear them. But if, if, they're, if, if a woman wants to wear, wants to wear pants and they're, and they're not Samud uh, to her body, they're not, like, form-fitting, it's very difficult for me to say that it's hard, but that's what I see from the sources. And he was backed up by another Rav, Rav, Rav Johnny, do you remember who the other, who the other Rav was? Yoni Rosenzweig. Uh, Rav Yoni Rosenzweig, who basically said the same thing. And uh, how luckily this is really not new ground, but what's really interesting is that, I mean, there was an immediate response from Shmuel Eliyahu, who's the rabbi, chief rabbi of Svat, who said the following. He said, he said, well, How can these two rabbis, unrecognized rabbis, publish something that's in contradiction to all of the gedolim who never permitted the wearing of pants. So that's one interesting thing. And then at the very end, it's what's, what's more interesting, Rabbi Eliyahu said the following. He said, um, I, wanna, I wanna find exactly what he said, because this really, this, really this really caught my eye. Okay, he said, um, that he felt, Ah, here we go. To permit women to wear pants, zekotze reut mafil. It's it's short-sighted. It's terrible short-sightedness. Okay, and where I'm fine. Okay, a girl who chooses to walk around in pants, mishachrerit et atzma 
She's looking for an excuse, okay, to free herself, communal obligation to keep mitzvot. And he said, this is what he really said. He said, Heter lalechet imichnesayim zeh latet la, okay? The heter that to give the permissiveness to allow this woman to wear pants will ultimately lead to chilul Shabbat. So I was, I was really fascinated by that perspective. And first, I wanted to know what your response was to that. I really, the interesting, it's less interesting to me, the idea of wearing pants, because that's a small, that's, a, that's an example. It's, it's a symbol. But the idea of, first of all, the idea that do two rabbis who, are, who, have, who have positions, is it their right, their responsibility to publicly publish their, their thoughts against a communally accepted norm on the one hand? And number two, okay, how is it, is it possible okay, that, that uh, the permissiveness of wearing pants is going to cause, uh, it's going to be a heter lechalel Shabbat time to cause you know, young women or whoever it is to violate the Shabbat? Let's start with Rav Johnny. Um. I'm going to make reference to the, your phrase, communally accepted norm. Now, uh, the remark by Rav Shmuel Elial basically says, the Gdolim have had a very, very clear, um, unflinching position regarding the wearing of pants. You know, at best, you have Rav who says, this is our least bad when presented with this or, or you know, the shirt, the short skirt option. Um, uh, but... I, in the community that I see, in the communities that I walk around, there are a number of women who certainly wear loose-fitting pants and at times don't. Now, I'm not here to justify my, and my place here isn't to directly remark on the, on the halachic positions and perspectives by Ido uh, Fechter uh, and Yoni Rosenzweig. Nevertheless, the key question is, if there is a religious decisor, who is living in a community, and the norms in their community reflect the fact that uh, some women are choosing to do something which may not be quite according to the generally understood norms as reflected by the uh, remarks and, and rulings of what we label Gdolim. Is it improper for them to address questions asked of them directly? and outline where they think the halakha line is. And my feeling is it's not just not improper, it's their job. Uh, that is, in, in, in the case where somebody is uh, situated and this is the behavior, then that rav or, or that halakhic decisor, their task is to address the questions uh, asked of them. And notwithstanding the fact that other people may well have taken a different view, um, what these people are trying to do is probably include people uh, who are already behaving in a particular way. Meaning questions don't come out of a, a Petri dish, right? They, they come from the real world. In the real world, there are many, many women in Israel who uh, would classify themselves absolutely as Torah observant, who wear pants in one respect or another. They've turned to a rabbi, they've sought advice, and that rabbi has has given their opinion. Wait, now, I want to push back a little bit. I want to push back a little bit. It's not that they're wearing skirts and then they turn to the rabbi and ask him what he wants, what, what he thinks, and because of, his, because of his position, then they said, oh, now I'm going to wear loose-fitting pants. The way you've described yeah. it, that's their practice. And, uh, you know, and Correct. so they, they asked the rabbi to justify their practice. Yeah, I, could probably is, find, I could probably list you about 100 cases in, in just contemporary response, let alone classic response, 
well, what is a particular normal behavior uh, uh, catches on, and then rabbis are asked to remark about how we deal with this in reality. Do we exclude people who are behaving in a particular way and label them as, as transgressors in one respect or another? Or do we look through the sources once again, uh, knowing that this is an issue where people are either struggling with or have taken private decisions upon themselves and say, uh, you know, how do I address such an individual? That is a classic rabbinic tool. And, and I would say to pretend that everybody asks a rabbi before they take any step is to, I mean, I know you, you have a nuanced understanding of, of halakhic development, but it's, it's to airbrush the, the authentic and organic way in which there's a dynamic between human behavior and halakhic consultation. Here you've got human behavior. There's been a halakhic consultation. The immaterial of whether we agree with the rabbi's conclusions or not, this is actually the halakhic process. Now, Rabbi Eliyahu could say, I disagree with their ruling. Beautiful. That's called the Machlok Shem Shemayim. One Rav says, I disagree with you. One Rav says, uh, I think I'm right here. But to, I think to uh, censor, to use a word again, uh, Rabbonin for responding to the questions emerging from their communities by members of their communities, reflecting the behaviors of their communities, I think is to, to paint a, a false portrait as to truly what happens in terms of, of Jewish law. Just give me one, one brief further moment. You know, uh, the tshuvot that are contained in volumes of responsa are often questions asked of rabbis and answered by rabbis, and they reflect a certain expectation of behavior. The internet has transformed not just um, which rabbis you can turn to, but the, the, the directness of the questioner's ability to reach uh, the answerer. It's led to a significant increase in women asking halachic questions directly, rabbanim, rather than uh, being filtered through another community rabbi, etc. Basically, what it also, has, Johnny, it also has led to the unique ability to search for the answer that you want to find and for it to always be there because Rab Google has the answer. You're right, that's a separate and, and a meaningful issue. But on this particular point, internet response give us a more authentic portrait of what Amcha are doing in the street because they're asking real questions rather than often the rabbinic questions which uh, are asked in a particular language reflecting a particular uh, perspective on society. And this is something which we know Yuval Shalo has written about at great length. There's numerous other academic articles which I'm happy to, to share. Uh, so for good or for bad, I think this is normal. Uh, and for good or for bad, whether we like their response, agree with their responses, or think this is a uh, a, a positive trend or could lead to, you know, mixed dancing, chil shabbos. The task of a rav is to address the issues of the day. And the issue of the day clearly is for some people this issue. And it's not, as you say, a new topic. So to also think that, that they're breaking rank. I mean, come on, there are, you know, many chuvot uh, talking about this topic for certainly the last 50 years. Sure. Okay, Bali. Okay, so I just want to push back on your pushback. Um, young women for over 20 years who it may be that they're coming from a certain background and they're used to wearing pants but then they're sincerely asking for sock they're not just you know can you just rubber stamp me and give me a yes I know plenty of women who are very who very seriously thought about this issue 
um, and had to make a, I had to make what they considered, a, I mean, what is, but I'm saying that from their minds, they were taking it seriously as a halakhic decision. So I just want to say that that's true. Push back, uh, accepted. Push back, received. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So and again, I'm not. I'm not discounting that there's also your phenomenon. I just want to say that that also exists. Um, also, oh, I want to add. It's interesting. My cousin was here, and they they were commenting. They they were fascinated by the fact that walking around Yerushalayim, they saw a number of women, any number of women, who were wearing pants and also covering their hair. Right. And they so said that. They said that in America, you just don't see that. If you're, you know what I'm saying? Those two go together. Okay, so that's interesting. Right, what you're saying about like, is one community more doing what they want and is one community, I don't know, that's very good. It's a whole other, maybe for a different podcast because I think the whole (laughs) logical, you know, religiosity in Israel. But okay, back to this issue. So, I mean, listen, I tell you, it's clear to me that like, again, like this is what I've been saying for years. Is it us, sir? It's very hard to say. It's not us, sir. Meaning there are two issues. Sni'ut, I should say it's not us, sir. Let me be careful. Let me get a backtrack. We can, we can delete that line. No, we'll quote <laughs> there, you. It's okay. There, there are two I issues. I can just see the article in Srugim. Bali Vronsky says it's not us, sir, to work at. No, it's not. <laughs> I am saying, there are, if you learn Sugya, seriously, um, there are two major issues, Beget Ish and Sni'ut. There's, there's, it's clearly not Beget Ish. And then the question becomes, is it Sanua? And therefore, um, that's where the room comes in. Um, loose pants and this pants and that pants are more Sanua than a skirt, fine. So, so if those two things are covered, that's like say the pure halachic considerations. Then there is the sociological consideration. And it happens to be true that everybody, even, and, and Rav Stav actually, and I think this is a response to Rav, Rav Eliyahu, this idea that like, oh, nobody says it's Mutzer. Stop has a list of people who said, I can't tell you that it's usser. I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's great. I'm not saying women should do it for reason X or reason Y, but I can't, it's a long list of very Mechubad Rabbanim who, who are, it's, you know, Rav Rosenzweig, Rav Joni Rosenzweig, and, and Rav Fachter, is that how you pronounce his name? Rav Fachter, are not the first ones to say this. Um, and I think that's important. I want to just go to the sociological issue and then I want to come back to this point. Um, I think women, what I always tell my students is the question, once you leave, once you get past the issue, the, the halachic, you, you've, let's say, made peace with or you've decided how you feel about the halachic considerations, there is a sociological reality. I often compare it to wearing a kippah. If you're living in a society where wearing a skirt identifies you a Jewish, as part of a Jewish community or a certain segment of the Jewish community, and wearing pants associates you with a different segment of the Jewish community, then you have to be comfortable being associ- deciding which, who you want to associate with and recognizing that your choice is going to have an impact on how people view you. And you can't go scream and say, I, but it's not fair. They shouldn't judge me. That's how human beings work. The same way a boy can't say, I'm going to put on a kipasruga, but it's so obnoxious that you don't realize that I'm Haredi or the other way around. There is a reality in which what we wear reflects who, what sociological group we're part of. And that, I think, is the real issue when it comes to pants that, that has to be thought of. And that is also subject to change. And again, I think loose pants is an example of that, where if that becomes more acceptable, then that changes the dynamic of how that's perceived as a, as, you know, as a sociological statement. But just back to your questions, which Wait, were, again, for a second. I just want, I want to push back a little bit. And especially get back to Rev. Johnny, because the same way he told me that 
Rabbanim respond to reality, and that's the, class, the classic nature of, of, of the Jewish response. He'd give me a hundred, I'm sure he could actually list a hundred off the top of his head, which I totally agree with. So this, your like distinction between halacha and sociology, and this is halacha and that's sociology, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now deep in the, in the woods of the minhag ashkenaz and custom and, and, the, and halacha, long time being considered one and the same. And that, that this idea that sociology... Right. Okay, so that I didn't say clearly. I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm not saying sociology is outside of halakha. I'm saying it's part of your consideration. Again, is it, is it halakhic requirement to wear kippah? I would say so. I would say so. Look, go, walk around and see every religious view that you see wearing a yarmulke. Okay. So that's than, what I'm saying. Yes, so listen, that's why I wear skirts and I'm raising my children, my daughters to wear skirts. And, you know, just being honest here, I think it's A, because there's that, what I described as a sociological component, but I do think that it's also, there's, there is a tokef to minhag. And, and I will even be more shamrani, I will be more conservative and say, I do think that because the majority of postgame who come out even and say it's okay, are not 100% comfortable with it. And they say, I can't really see that it's us, sir. But like, um, here, I'm, I'm just reading from the, the um, responses in Rav Stav's article, right? Um, okay, let's take it. Rav Aviner, right? Even Rav Aviner, right? It says, um, um, Rav Aviner says, um, Right? By the way, Rav Avenir is clearly talking. I think he shouldn't have quoted that one because Rav Avenir was talking about a girl who's wearing pants under a skirt. Oh, you know okay. So that, thank, you for, thank you for pointing that out. That's, but my point <laughs> was just good one. That, thank you. He says, right? And then he has, he has other people, right? Who say yeah, he, he has other people. He has other people. Um, kashe, this is this is Rav Lior, right? bad rechavim kashe lo mar sheza asur aval domesh ein zatoeim et ruach hayahadu. So it, it's hard to so I take that seriously, right? I take it seriously that we that you don't have people saying I think this is awesome and we should all be doing it. I think that that does have to me that does have weight that has whatever word you want to put that in. I was using sociology, but I agree with you that sociology is part of halacha, minhag. Again, the whole idea of dat yehudi is this idea that what we do has, has religious significance. Um, so, so, okay, but back to the, back to the topic here, um, right? I, I, I would say that I agree with the, the, the comment of Ravi Lai Ofran, right? Who, who I think you were going to quote, but I'll just kind of preempt you here because I, I think it's, it's, he says it very well, right? He says he used to play a game as a child where they would be driving down the street and, you know, in their car, and they wanted to be the fastest car on the road. So anytime a car would pass them, they'd say, oh, we have, that car's out. That car's puzzle. We don't count that car. So magically, they always won, right? So I think that, that, that here in this, in, in, this, in this article, you know, uh, of Reveliyahu, he's kind of doing the same thing. All the Gedoli Hadar, except all the ones that I don't want to give credit to because they're too, you know, they're not really... You know, because they disagree Hala- with me. Because they disagree with me. Because I, they disagree with me, and you know, you can always pull out the the like, you know, the, the their more liberal card. So that I think is one of the issues that I that, that I think is an important point. Um, had another point. One second. Um, okay. Wh- while you're thinking about so, that, I want to ask I want to ask one more question, and this struck me. 
uh, I specifically quoted Rav, Rav uh, Eliyahu's last comment. If I was, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not, exactly. That's sorry to interrupt. If I were to do, uh, no, it's quite funny. a lot. It's like, oh, come on, it's going to lead to mixed dancing, which I happen yeah. to think, that, like, I don't like when people are mizalzel. I use that as a joke, leading to mixed dancing. I do think we have to be careful of slippery slopes. But in this case, I have very little patience for it because um, it, this does, that seems to me to be the opposite. It's, if you tell people that if they wear pants, they're going to be Michal Shabbos, that's going to cause people to think, all right, I'm wearing pants, I might as well be Michal Shabbos. I just think that's ridiculous. People are smarter than that. People are uh, more discerning than that. And very often, if you, you know, reflect understanding and empathy without giving in on halachic integrity, um, you're more likely to keep people in the fold than if you tell people what their intentions are, which I also find problematic, right? No, you obviously just want a hector and you're, you want to just be rebellious. That whole, the whole line there, I, you know, did not appeal to me. It, that way. it doesn't appeal to you, but if I would ask you to sit, ask, do statistics of, the, of Shomrei Shabbat versus Mechalale Shabbat, what percentage of girls who wear skirts are Shomer Shabbat? Oh, what please. percentage of girls who are religious? Oh, are, come on. Yeah, but, okay, but yeah, yeah causation but, and relation and much larger sociological issues. It's not the pants that are causing people to do Mechalale Shabbat. I, I, I was going to say, I, I, I'm, I'm often astounded. Um, and, and here, I'm, again, I'm not making specific reference to Shmuel Liao. Uh, who is, you know, renowned as being an expert in many areas of halakha and speaks up repeatedly often on points which are really important. Um, nevertheless, I often find that a tumult occurs whenever anything to do with women's clothes uh, is addressed specifically by men who seem to often do that, which itself is oftentimes <laughs> hard to fathom. Halavai, we got so agitated uh, with other things which at least are on par, and I would sometimes say as well as, well as uh, the ethics of, of the Torah, uh, perhaps take greater priority. We've, we began our discussion about, and I, and I alluded to the fact that numerous people were fairly silent over a period of years when a known sexual predator was teaching and have only spoken up when he's been caught of doing something wrong. Here we can have two rabbis who... I think are doing their job, but immaterially, even if you think they're not, they say something which is perceived by some to be controversial, and there's a whole hoo-ha, uh, and everyone is chatting about it. You know, why on earth is what a, a woman is wearing, from the perspective of a man, takes such priority over so many other things that they need to be torchbearers for uh, and, and safekeepers of? Uh, if we care about Torah, you know, let's think about Tariq mitzvahs rather than necessarily how we read this fairly nuanced and delicate and, 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 um, and, and somewhat complex question which has a relationship between norms and laws. Let's invest the same amount of energy so that really, really can move forward as a society. If we always get het up about women's clothes and don't come close about many other far more important things, I think that doesn't really give a good reflection of where we're holding what really troubles us. Okay, I would say, I, I, I agree with you, but I don't know, I think that's a little bit much. I think it's a topic, it was a blog post. These no, we can talk about it because we talk about things on a weekly basis that are, are being discussed within a religious science community. I think it's not just a valid, I think it's a, a, a more than valid topic for our conversation. However, just in terms of quantity of columns, 
received and attention received, not just by uh, uh, you know people writing on social media, but by serious scholars. And I'm wondering, you know, what what else is on your mind, my friend? You know, I thought it was interesting because if you look at Rav, Rav Ofran's article, I think it was Rav Ofran's article, he said, listen, I'm really uncomfortable, you know, really giving sock for women in general, but then he went on to do it. You know, so I thought that was sort of like trying to have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> Either you don't want to give sock for women and you're just like, you know, because he says, he's like, I never wore a skirt. I don't know what it means to wear a skirt. I don't know what the implications of having to wear a skirt are, you know. I don't know. I, I think you can't have it both ways. I don't think, I happen to think that this wasn't beyond, like out of proportion. I th- was more interested less in the, is it Sanur or not Sanur, which we haven't discussed, which I'm glad about, but more whether the sociological implications and the notion of, is there such a thing in, and, uh, as, as, a, as a gadol and, can, and, and can, can there be minority opinions and what the social implications really are. Okay, I think we're going to stop I, here. I just say one thing, because sure, I'd please. like to just uh, thank Johnny. Um, for that point and just, you know, talk about lived experience as a woman, there is definitely, and again, I am always the nice, good girl who defends the rabbis, but, you know. Except believe, now. <laughs> you know, believe me, having fought my share of battles for, for women's issues, there is definitely a sense that, like, change the nusachshul, Blah, blah, that's fine. Like, there's so many things that go without comment, but the minute it has to do with women's issues, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're destroying the Masora. And again, this is from the person who... That's fine, as long as you're not dancing with the Torah and Simcha's Torah. That's all fine. What'd you say? As long as you're not dancing with the Torah and Simcha's Torah, you can do whatever you want. Um, okay, that'll be our next topic, because it's <laughs> discussed in our community. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, your point is well taken. Your point is absolutely well taken. It's well said. Okay, we're going to stop here. I want to thank uh, Robert Johnny Salman. I want to thank Molly Brosky. Uh, this has been RZ Weekly. This is our second installment. We ask you to, uh, of course, share. If you're enjoying, please share with your friends. This is a new podcast because that's how things spread through word of mouth. Um, and also, if you see us on iTunes, if you don't use iTunes, you can rate us on iTunes and then we'll get more promotion in iTunes. And of course, that'll help as well. Okay, wishing you all a good week. Thanks very much. Have a great, great week. Bye-bye.